0: Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to The Shmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Henry Saposnik, an award-winning author, radio and record producer, and performer of traditional Yiddish and American music. He's a four-time Grammy Award nominee and has won two Peabody Awards for his work co-producing The Yiddish Radio Project which aired on NPR. He co-founded KlezCamp, serves as the first director of the Max and Frieda Weinstein Archive of Recorded Sound at Evo, and is credited with the late 20th century revival of Klezmer. Henry is director of UW-Madison's Mayrant Institute for Yiddish Culture and was a Yiddish Book Center Translation Fellow. Welcome, Henry. We're delighted to have you here with us today. Thanks so much for having me. So your latest project is recently released CD, "Attractive Hebrews," the Lambert Yiddish cylinders, 1901 to 1905, and I'd love it if you can share a little bit of the backstory, both about Lambert, the recordings, and how you became aware of all of these cylinders.
1: Uh, actually, I first became aware of the um, Lambert cylinders in the um, in the 1970s when I was working with a man named Dick Spotswood, who was compiling uh, ethnic music on records, uh, a discography of all ethnic recordings made in the United States from 1895 to 1942. And he had me working on the uh, Yiddish catalog with him and produced a document, a, a catalog, from 1900, 1901, somewhere, about these uh, recordings, these Lambert recordings. No one had ever seen any. He had never seen any. He's a veteran discographer. I had certainly, at that point, had never seen any. So I've known about them for uh, 40 years and never really gave much uh, thought, because no one had, again... I've never met anyone who's heard them. I've never met anyone who's ever (laughs) heard of them, let alone heard them. And through a very fortuitous friendship with an early sound collector named David Giovanoni, who I know through doing other early uh, sound recording projects, he had very quietly uh, over the last couple of decades, he had acquired the uh, only known collection of uh, Lambert uh, cylinders uh, anywhere. He had purchased them from a woman whose father had been the original uh, purchaser. He bought them when, I believe, when they were new. So that would mean that he was... Because, again, these were made in 1901. So, um, David Giovannoni had had them in his personal collection because they were exceedingly rare, terribly interesting, and really one of the most uh, curious and one of the most important of record companies about which nobody knows just about anything. And uh, he deaccessioned them from his collection partially because he wanted to... Acquire some other stuff, but also because he felt that um, the collection which I curate uh, at the UW-Madison, he felt would be the proper repository uh, for the recordings. They would be cared for, they would be researched, they would be um, and um, disseminated. And it's it was about a year ago that we acquired... The cylinders, as you can see, I I spent a lot of time doing something else before I finally <laughs> got around to listening to these things. So uh, amazing, amazing windfall.
0: With your liner notes, you suggest that this is a result of 30 years of purposeful seeking, meticulous ingathering, and generous deacquisitioning. So a little bit about the Lambert Company. I mean... Um, This was part of their catalog, but their catalog was not exclusively Yiddish or Jewish music, correct?
1: Yeah, there was no such thing as commercial disseminated Jewish music. Thomas Lambert, uh, in 1900, developed a uh, new improvement over the uh, popular wax cylinders, which Thomas Edison had, had invented and had popularized in the 1880s. Uh, in fact, Lambert's improvement—the fact that he used uh, celluloid, a much more resilient surface than um, Edison's wax—the fact that they were more resilient, that they had better sound, that they were that they were stronger, would last longer—impressed uh, Edison so much that he dedicated himself to uh, putting Thomas Lambert out of business, which is what, in fact, he did. Uh, by 1906, but for reasons which are completely opaque and not at all clear, for some reason, in the midst of the hundreds and hundreds of ragtime pieces and banjo solos and coon songs and marches and mother songs that he was issuing that were the the core, central core, of Tin Pan Alley and popular music, for some inexplicable reason, uh, Thomas Lambert issued a, 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 the largest number of Jewish recordings which had, uh, to that point, uh, been issued in one place at one time. Lambert was not Jewish, even though his uh, his middle-given name was Levi. A lot of non-Jews had the name Levi. mm mm-hmm. um, and uh, there are no records, uh, literally no paper records. Thomas Lambert was, in fact, not really, I don't believe he even had anything to do with the content of the recordings. He was a, um, an inventor. He was interested in the uh, R&D side of the label. Somebody, somebody was the one who said, hey, let's, let's put these out at a time that um, again no other mass issue of Jewish music in fact ethnic recording was still really in its formative stages so this is a real visionary
0: move so it's interesting that you say visionary I think on two levels one I mean I would look at this commercially from a marketing standpoint there must have been an audience, and an, enough of an audience for them to think it made sense to put it into the catalog, but I suspect that they didn't really consider the importance of the legacy of these recordings, do you?
1: Oh, no. Uh, legacy for such a brand-new technology was, uh, who thinks of these things? They're in the midst of inventing themselves. They're not thinking about, oh, in a hundred years, some, some, some like, shut-in, uh, ethnomusicologist, uh, with not much else to do, is going to document us. The the Jewish market, again, mm-hmm. Yiddish culture, Yiddish popular culture, um, was still in its formative stages. It still had its showroom shine at this point, and And the idea of saying, oh, here is a quote-unquote market, before it had really been defined in any other medium but the closest you could come is to say well yiddish sheet music but if you look at the history of yiddish sheet music that also was pretty brand new and i in a very localized and a very regional phenomenon it hadn't become the mass communication that it would come somewhere down the pike so again uh, and and as I mentioned in my notes, I said if this man was interested in ethnic music and minority music and traditional music, Chicago was awash. It was the center, it was the second largest center for Irish traditional and popular music, Polish music, so forth, and and none of that, none of that uh, was explored. So there's a real kind of a, a sort of Damocles' mystery hanging over. The intention, not the realization. Mm-hmm. We know that these are these are industrial strength recordings compared to what major labels like Victor and Columbia were about to do.
0: And what are the roots of the music?
1: Uh, the repertoire, uh, and again, the the Lambert cylinders, which David Giovanni found, uh, represent only a portion of what is available. There's only one extant catalog which lists all of the Jewish recordings. I reproduce it in the pages uh, of the notes. And luckily for us, this collection that, um, that he put together, though small, uh, reflects the um, diversity of the other items in the catalog for which we have no examples so the uh, the majority would be would be really what we would now look to as a theater music it was the earliest strata of composed songs which are part of a larger production so there's the first known recording of uh, Rajen Kismet Mondlin uh, at at a time which to me, gave me the chills that I realized that this recording, the Washington Kismet Mandeln, which is probably 1901, 1902, we're not really sure because recording ledgers have not survived. Uh, we just know that everything was out by 1905. But to me, a number of pieces in there are from Goldfotten, both from his, his earliest period of his kind of his, his shtetl satires, like the, the Baba and the Ainiklah, the grandmother and the grandchildren, and uh, the Baba Yage, you know, the the, the witch, uh, and his what we think of him were his second period of his biblical and post-biblical dramas. Um, that's what made up the uh, the Goldfaden. Uh, catalog in the Lambert issues, and Goldfaden was actually still alive when these recordings came out. He may yes. have even, we'll never know, we may have heard them, he may have owned these, these first recordings of his, of his works. So on the one hand, we have something like Caution Kiss McMondlin, which is a bulletproof, deathless, timeless, w- will live forever and 6 months song. And then there are these other songs from the Goldfaden catalog, which no one has ever no one living has ever heard before this reissue came out. And we can now hear lost arias and pieces from Goldfaden operettas that haven't been heard in a hundred years.
0: Wow. But were they recorded in studios? Were any of them live recordings?
1: These were recorded in studios and and again the, the, the technology was so primitive, these were not recorded. The microphone had the, did not yet exist. It would still be another 20 years before a microphone um, came on the scene, enabling a much more technologically and acoustically uh, uh, dynamic sound. These were recorded. Uh, imagine the image of a dunce cap. It was recorded into something that looked like that, a recording horn, which had a very limited dynamic range, so it had to be in a controlled environment, um, and because of the limited dynamic range, you couldn't have what would have been possible at the time, which was a uh, a pit orchestra, as the early theaters uh, even had, all you could that would be effectively picked up would be, as the case was, uh, a spinet uh, piano with a limited uh, range, not the full 88 keys. So it was a singer standing in front of the recording horn and a pianist behind the singer. And this was, um, this, was this was it. The, the mystery within the mystery, the nesting doll, the matushka, doll of this came in the first listening. I had heard other Lambert cylinders. The Archeophone company who issued uh, this had put out a reissue five, seven years ago of the general catalog a uh, Lambert cylinders. Um, again, coon songs, banjo solos, uh, you know, lacrimose uh, mother songs. Um and each of them basically sounded the same this was an era before record labels before the actual paper labels so you would have to the each per, each performance was it was required to precede it with an announcement and the announcement was the name of the song the name of the singer and the record label so this was everyone
2: mm-hmm. did it
1: this way the the odd thing was on the um on the English language Lamberts, the they would say, you know, uh uh the The Preacher and the Bear sung by Arthur Collins, Lambert Indestructible Records or uh, the Lambert Company of Chicago. Maybe one of those two things. But on the Yiddish recording, it'd say the Mein von Solomon Schmolevich standard Records He does not say Lambert. And what does that mean? I have never in fact, in the world of discography, the world of historic sound recordings, the idea of having a recording on one label, but which the performer identifies as yet another label, is literally unheard of. It is so rare and so unusual. So after I fell out of my chair mm-hmm. and went on a intensive search of trying to find out what was standard records? Like no one, none of the collectors uh, I had um, ever spoken to had ever heard of a Yiddish. There were plenty of standard, quote unquote, standard records. The problem with standard records is the name standard was too standard. So there were quite a few other labels named standard, but a specifically Yiddish one. Um, had no one there was no evidence i'd never seen it i'd never heard of it um this is what i've been doing for over half a century so it would come as a shock if you know this fully formed entity suddenly existed well that's what happened uh, through, looking through the earliest yiddish press i came across advertisements for the standard phonograph company on grand street uh, in in Manhattan, the heart of the, the uh, Yiddish neighborhood. Though there is no, I don't have a smoking gun, I don't have a contract, I don't have any of these things, this is the closest we've come to actually coming up with a logical uh, explanation about where this mass of recordings, which seemingly were recorded in New York, but subsequently issued on a label in Chicago this is a really curious story uh yeah. and and one which we have evidence we're awash in evidence but but without um historical documents without oral histories or whatever um it's it's just it's just curious and it's an enigma wrapped in a uh, in a <laughs> in, cylinder in, in, yeah. <laughs> Better than an wrapped in a cylinder. And better than good.
0: Wow. Well maybe somebody who's listening will have an answer for us. Um
1: Olivi. <laughs> Double olivi.
0: So I I can only imagine what it must have been like for you when you first began to listen to these.
1: Well, I the the format of these uh, recordings. Um, was familiar to me because again 1901 when I believe these cylinders were made were the first year that the arrival of Victor Company started by the, the Jewish inventor of the microphone Emil Berliner issued a number of the same songs uh, but by a totally different performer and, um, so some of them there was a familiarity with this earliest, earliest acoustic sound uh, that, oh yeah, I've heard this song or I've heard of this song, but there's a deeper repertoire tucked away in this. Again, there are the uh, songs of the earliest uh, Yiddish playwrights, Goldfaden being the diamond in the tiara of of Yiddish playwrights, Uh, Professor Hurwitz, the famous, convert to christianity who, who who produced quite a number of successful uh, yiddish plays uh they were the uh, the songwriting team of pearl Mucker, and Vol, who uh, were brought together by professor herwitz and who composed the, they were the lenin and mccartney of yiddish music so there were all of these theatrical songs but then there was this strange repertoire that I can only imagine is, is an earlier strata of Yiddish street music, which I liken to the, uh, the prototype of the Yiddish theater were a number of traveling singers called the Brodozingo. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Brodozingo, from the middle 19th century, a kind of a loosey-goosey amalgam of men and women uh, who were pushing the envelope on the Yiddish cultural literacy breaking down the the barriers that Goldfaden successfully breached in his theater of liberation as I as I call it the Yiddish theater was a uh, an astounding event no less revolutionary than the political and national movements which surrounded it in the late 19th century Goldfaden liberated the Yiddish language to be a dynamic force. For popular uplift, uh, musicians no longer had to wait for weddings or bar mitzvahs to play music. Uh, singers uh, no longer had to be tied to the synagogue and only sing on holidays. And most importantly, women could now perform in public, as opposed to kolisha keeping them uh, tied to the home. So, the the earliest of these Brodozinga who, who established a kind of a willful uh, self-invention, what little we know about them uh, indicates they're kind of a lusty and, and arch and a serrated kind of repertoire of, like, really uh, uh, funny, bitter, insightful, not like the kind of the, the, the starry-eyed... Yiddish songs of later, later decades, like by Mirbiz Duchesne. Uh, mm-hmm. These are really arch, it's like, it's like Rashi with an attitude and a good sense of rhythm. Um, ter- terrific, interesting stuff. And that's what some of these songs are. Uh, some of them obviously never published. Uh, and like field recordings, like the historic documents they actually are. This is a, an unfettered uh, ability for us to eavesdrop on the earliest strata of how Yiddish popular culture saw itself by the pioneers who willed
0: it into existence. Wow. And um, you chose to translate lyrics Yeah. (laughs) Which I think is really important for those myself um, who are not Yiddish speakers. Um, It really does give you an entry point to understanding some of what's there. I I imagine that was important to you.
1: Well, what was important, yes, I I think because the, the original performers of these things were dealing with a culture that even the most illiterate Yiddle was still pretty literate. Mm -hmm. They had access to the language. They had access to the ritual and the meaning behind the ritual. They understood a wide diversity of both vernacular and religious music just by growing up in a soundscape where this is all easily available. Uh, the, The translations are critical both to give a literal meaning, but to try to decode within its within the lyrics, there's a lot of context which is really lost to us. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of the framing of these things that we will never know, um, and and it's 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 kind of you know this is like you know the equivalent of some sort of like clay tablet uh, that that we get a one aspect of the culture without the supporting aspects of the culture that put it in a, um, a deeper context. The thing I really wanted to do with this was to honor the, the craft and the art of the lyricists, and thanks to the, the context that I was in of being a translation uh, fellow at, uh, at the Yiddish Book Center, it was while I was there working on my the translations for which I was I was given the fellowship, which were uh, Yiddish um, Dadaist radio poems of Victor Packer. Really wonderful, wonderful stuff. But it was while I was working on those that these cylinders turned up, and uh, it took me days to clean up after my head exploded. <laughs> that, like I'm saying, oh my god. I have to stop translating rare Yiddish sound recordings so I could have time to translate some rare Yiddish sound recordings. <laughs> so um, I, I set myself the task of not merely translating uh, the songs, but retaining the translation using the same rhyming pattern and the same rhythmic substructure. So that... It could, if someone wanted to, you could perform these now, and it would evoke powerfully the original performance intention of mm-hmm. the uh, of the original performer and the original composer. At least I'd like to think so.
0: Well, we can try. I always wanted to be a torch singer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a whole other aside. Um, oh,
2: there it is. It, that's with me.
0: Um, so. This is fascinating, Um, and I'm just wondering, is there a website where our listeners can learn more about the project, more about what you're working on? I know you have a CD, which we will make sure to let people know it will be available in the Yiddish Book Center's online and on-site store, but is there anywhere else where we should direct people?
1: Well, we have uh, posted on our May Rent Institute website, uh, we've posted a sample of the um, of one of the tracks, it's a song from um, a Goldfaden operetta called Kenegach Schweres, and it's a song called Vaisuso uh, about um, one of Homan's sons, um, and that uh, is that's on the website, and it gives kind of the background of the Lambert Company talks about this particular song, and that's uh, Mayrent Institute. At whisk, w i s c. dot e d u uh, backslash v a y z as in zebra u s o. We're going to be launching a website at the Mayrant Institute this fall. We have um, the one of the largest collections of uh, Yiddish seventy eights. Uh, in the world, I mean, roughly uh, Sherry Mayrent, who uh, founded the collection, has brought together uh, we're about ten thousand eleven thousand seventy eight and and now ten cylinders. And so we're going to be doing a, a website that well basically does what the recording with the CD reissue. There'll be sound documents, there'll be translations. There'll be pictures of relevant sheet music, photographs of theaters, of composers, of uh, period uh, newspaper advertising. Or, uh, so, again, a kind of a one-stop shopping, which uses the period sound recordings as, as an audio key. It's the abracadabra of, 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 of Yiddish, um, uh, Yiddish popular culture, mass culture of the beginning of the 20th century.
0: Well, Henry, thank you so much for visiting with us today and for all the work that you have done to provide us with uh, a music that has um, roots and a legacy and tradition and will continue to evolve and explain a culture to us. Um, So, again, thank you so much, and we look forward to having you back with us to talk about your other or next project.
1: Looking forward. Thanks for
0: asking. Okay, all best. Bye-bye.
2: Bei Jesus, auf nachher Schwierig, gesungen von Dave Franklin, Stand-up-Rekord. Ich sparen völlig ich mich mit keinem vor. ich lege ein Hesse, doch was uns war. Wo man geht, wo man steht in jedem Land, ist da erkannt, bei so ist ein Anar. Jede Oberhaus von ihm durch die Sacklol, weil er ist mit der Behonne Gold. Er ist Gitz, still bericht, schafft es nicht, keines ist beliebt, jo, iberal. Ey, der Erz, sie handeln mit der Klingendieb, Akele, was Schwindler, und so. I'm not ja ja! a jay, I'm a jay, i You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Sarah Blakefeld. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon.